for today, I'm going to review what we talked about last week, clarify a couple things. I want to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians, uh, and I want to read the entire chapter 12 and 13 again. So two chapters, that'll take me a few minutes, and then after that, hopefully open it up for some questions that I have for us to you know, answer together. So it's a lot, but I think we can do it in the next, next hour or so. So for review, you know, what is the church? That's a word that in Greek, ekklesia, we talked about that, um, and it means a calling out of or out of a calling. So basically, it's a calling out of a, a group of people. It's used a lot in the New Testament. It was actually used a lot in the Septuagint to describe the Israelites when there's a Hebrew word to describe a gathering of Israel. And in the Septuagint, a lot of times that word was translated ekklesia. So it was used there first before it was used in the New Testament. And it really has a couple, two really different applications when you're talking about Christians. You have the visible church, a group of people like we have here at Faith Community, or they had in Corinth, or they had in Galatia, or wherever. And it also describes the invisible or the universal church. You remember, maybe you remember, what book in the Bible mentions the word church the most? Anybody? Yes, that's close. Acts. Acts is 23 times in Acts, 22 times in 1 Corinthians. And then chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is where it's mentioned the most of any chapter in the Bible, which we're not going to get to, but that's a really interesting chapter too. Um, and then there's other times in the New Testament where clearly uh, Paul or Peter, is talking about the church, but they don't use the word. Like in Acts chapter 2, you know, at uh, Pentecost, when um, the Holy Spirit visits, and it says after that, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's a pretty good description of the church as we see it, right? Okay. There's several key verses that we went through last week. We'll come to Matthew 16 in a minute. That's the first time the word's used in the New Testament, ecclesia. It's when uh, Jesus tells Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The second time it's used in the, New, in the Gospels is in Matthew 18, where bringing charges against a brother, and if they don't respond, you take it to the church, the church discipline verses. It's really interesting the only two times the word's used in the Gospels, and both of them are in Matthew just interesting to me, too. One sort of refers to the universal church, one refers to the local church. Not sure what that means, but it's, it's interesting to me. It's a good way to remember it. A couple other key verses. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. That's in reference to the invisible church, his people. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That, in a way, you consider is the universal gathering of his people. 
He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, talking about Jesus, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's Ephesians 1, 22. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, describing the church as a, as a building. Another description of the invisible church as God sees it, not necessarily as we see it. By the way, that's a good definition of the invisible church. It's what God sees, not what we see. And then Hebrews 12 has a neat verse talking about the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. It's a nice description of the body of Christ. And then there's lots of verses which describe the visible church I won't talk about, but church in Galatia, in Ephesus, in Thessalonica, in your house, etc. Okay, so let's go briefly back again to Matthew 16. I, I want to clarify what we talked about, because this is a famous verse about Peter and Petra and Petros, and what does it mean, and what is Jesus really saying? And I want to read those uh, several verses. It's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. First time the word is used in the New Testament, uh, Matthew sixteen thirteen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So, there are basically, as I understand it, and I read a commentary by James Boyce, who I love. He is he's great, and he's got a, a really nice summary of this verse, um, which I think can help clarify some of the things I said last week. So there are three ways that the people over, three main ways people have interpreted this verse over the years. Um, and you'll remember that Peter... Jesus gave him that name, Rock. His real name wasn't Peter, it was Simon. So Jesus early on named him Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, but in Greek it's, Pe it's Petros. So essentially Jesus just said, you're Rock. That's his name. You are Rock. Um, and in, in, in this verse, in Greek, he says, you are Petros, Rock, Peter, that's your name, and upon this rock, Petras, A-S, the feminine version of it, I'll build my church. And so the, the uh, sort of disagreements are, how do we interpret the use of these words? What's Jesus really trying to say here? So one way to interpret it, Peter is the rock. Jesus is saying, you're Peter, and you're the rock I'm going to build this church on. That is what the Roman Catholics for sure believe this verse says. Some Protestants believe that. And... I think we could go with them somewhat because Peter is a rock. Like we're all living stones built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. But he could have been using that image to say, you know, in the early church, Peter, you're the rock. I'm going to build my early church on you. That's obvious in Acts that he is the leader of the church. So that could be what Jesus is saying. 
Um, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the church being the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus the cornerstone, but the other believers uh, are also stones. So the interesting thing, though, the reason I don't go for that so much is uh, because, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't found a lot of discussion on this, just a little bit. You know, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. So this is Greek, and so to say it's a play on words assumes Jesus did that play on words intentionally with the feminine versus the masculine, but he was speaking in Aramaic. So I think the fact that Jesus spoke a different language, but he's recorded in Greek, weakens that argument a little bit. But I'm not going to be too, too firm on that. Anybody have thoughts on that? Anybody who studied this more? Jesus pretty much, I think, when he taught his disciples, spoke Aramaic. So that, to me, is, is a weakness in that uh, understanding of it. But I'm not sure. Go ahead. At the bottom it says he used in Aramaic the capital Kepha and then for the other one the non-capital Kepha. They were the same word in Aramaic. Yeah, so I don't know how you speak in capitals. but So who knows? (laughs) So anyway, anyway, the point is he, he did say you're the rock and on this church and on you I'll and on this rock, I'll build my church. Could have been referring to Peter. I, I can go so far that. But there's a second way to interpret this, which is that Peter's confession is the rock. So the faith of Peter saying, you're the Christ, is the, is the foundation of the church. This profession uh, is the rock. And a lot of Protestant churches have taught this. And again, I don't want to come down too hard because, of course, that's also true. right? Peter was an early rock. The church is built on faith. So no problem in my mind with either of those two, really. But we wouldn't agree with the Roman Catholic version, by the way, that there's this succession of people from Peter, a visible church. So the the third way to interpret it is Jesus is saying, you're Peter, and on this rock, Jesus referring to himself, I'll build my church. That's another way you can interpret this. Jesus is really referring to himself. Um, In other words, you're Petros, a little stone, but I'm the cornerstone. I'm the real stone that the church is going to be built on. And that's the way I lean now, mainly because James Boyce says that, and I like him, and he's convincing. (laughs) But he he refers me to other few verses in, in the Gospel, Matthew 7, where Jesus gives a parable about the rain falling, the floods came, the winds blow and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That is Petra, the same Greek word used here. Jesus is referring to himself, a house being built on Jesus, the rock. The stone that the builders rejected is a chief cornerstone. That's another description of Jesus being the rock. So all three of those are possible, I think, the third one, and I think there's more convincing evidence that that is probably what he meant. Jesus saying, I'm the rock of the church. Because in First Peter, when Peter writes his letter, read what he says. As you come to him, a living stone. He's talking about Jesus being a stone. Rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones. So almost like he's saying, Jesus is the real stone, but we're all stones also. Are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, referring to Jesus. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, Jesus. This is, these are quotes from Isaiah and Psalm 118. So, don't want to spend much more time on that, but I think I spoke last week and confused things, but I think it was those three versions, all of which, in some ways, we can accept. I think it's important, too, Tim, that it's Peter who's, you know, saying that Jesus is the cornerstone. Right. So the people that, you know, some of the other faiths are claiming Peter is the rock or the church. Right. Peter's actually saying, no, right. he's pointing to Jesus, so I think it's important. Uh, yeah. Scripture. Yeah, I agree. Okay. The thrust of the lesson today is going to be about talking about unity. Um, could you grab me a little coffee? Just so I can sip it. Yeah, just a little splash, thanks. Um, so, last week we talked about this too, a strong emphasis of the concept of the church being unified. One flock, one shepherd. Jesus prayed for the church to be unified when he was with the uh, um, disciples in John 17. The talks about... Um, he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you... Thank you, Adam. Excuse me. Thanks. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. They may be one, even as we are one. Them in you, in me, they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. So Jesus prays for the church to be one to the Father, then it's going to happen, right? The church is, in some sense, always going to be unified, and unity is really important. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We'll come back to this again later. I'll just read a few of those verses. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, diligent, endeavor, labor hard. We're to be eager, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. You are called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Unity is really important in the church. There's lots of other verses. If you were to, As we go through the New Testament, you'll see when the church is mentioned and people are admonished, it's about unity. Unity of the faith, unity with God and the Father. Philippians 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's 1 Peter. So those were the main points we talked about last week. And what I want to do today is flip to 1 Corinthians and give a little review of the book. And by the way, I listened last night to Shane's sermon. He taught through 1 Corinthians several years ago. And in January of 2013, so we're talking over four years ago, 
he started teaching on 1 Corinthians. And I went back last night and listened to the introductory first sermon on that series. You all have to go listen to it. It is excellent. And my, I have to say... What he said, I'm using here, so he gets credit for some of this lesson. Uh, not all of it, but some of it. It really did help shape my how I was going to present this, because like I said, I was going to present the metaphors of the church, but so many of them are actually in 1 Corinthians. That we're just going to hone in on 1 Corinthians. And you remember that uh, that church had, had its problems, right? A lot of conflicts, a lot of division in the church. There were quarrels, even in Chapter 1, some say I'm for Apollos, some say I'm for uh, Peter, some say I'm for Christ. You're divided. This is not right. Right out of the chute in the first chapter, he says Christ is not divided. Stop dividing yourselves. There's jealousy and strife. In chapter 3, Paul talks about, don't be that way. Yeah, okay, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who does the work. So don't be divided over that. There was immorality. Remember chapter 5 talks about a, a immorality in a family, a, adultery. There were lawsuits in chapter 6. They were suing each other in the worldly way. They couldn't resolve their own conflicts. They were running to the judges and the lawyers and suing each other. He rebuked them for that. There was controversy about um, sacrificing food to idols. How do you do that? Why are you doing that? What's your witness when you do it? The whole chapter 8 that discusses that. There were other Divisions and a contentious attitude. They weren't um, going to the Lord's table properly, and they were rebuked for that. They took pride in their different gifts. Chapter 12 discusses that. Some thought one gift was better than another, and he rebukes them. And then there was a controversy of speaking in tongues. So in that church, there were just a lot of problems, a lot of conflict, and a lot of division. And the recurring theme, Paul's antidote to it, he keeps coming back to it. Be united. Be united. Be united. And we're going to talk about what that means and read the verses that Paul uses to help them in that. And so what I want to do is go through 1 Corinthians with some select verses and then we'll we'll read chapters 12 and 13 and then we'll um, have a discussion. I have some prepared questions here for us. First, 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 10. Right after the... No, let's do the introduction first because that really sets the stage. Verses 1 and 2. So Paul's writing to the church who's got conflicts. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to the ecclesia of God, which is at Corinth, to you local body of believers... Here, this is who I'm writing to. To those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, you're you're believers, you've been sanctified, you're saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. So I think here he's saying, you local church, ecclesia, along with the invisible church, ecclesia, all of you, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read, sorry, I'm just going to keep reading all the way through about 13 or 14. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, 
so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a great introduction, encouraging introduction. You're enriched, you're built up, you have this testimony of Christ in your lives, you're being sanctified, you're together, grace to you, peace to you, etc. And then verse 10, now, here's his first exhortation. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. So, he starts out this whole book where he is going to address conflicts. And he, right out of the chute, he says something that probably, or maybe, they're thinking, that's not possible. How, really? You're exhorting us to agree and have no divisions? So that we'll be made complete and have the same mind and the same judgment. So that was a tall order for them, no doubt. This is why he wrote 15 or 16 more chapters repeating this Exhortation. Unite, unite, unite. Okay, let's just, I'll read a few more verses here. Now I mean this, and so the first division they have is over who's, I guess, the better teacher. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. So, Right out of the chute, Christ isn't divided. Be careful. You don't follow one teacher over another. Um, flip over to chapter 3. And I want to start with verse 10. So the first division is over, over the, the division over teachers. There's jealousy and strife that he's going to address here. And I'll start about chapter 3, verse 10 or 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So he's using this image here, both, two images. We're, we're a field of crops and we're a building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Apollos, nope, which is Paul, nope, which is Jesus Christ. So he's the foundation of the building. He's the chief stone. He's the big Petras that the building is being built on. Um, now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he's built on it, remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now this is a key verse. Do, not, do you not know that you are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So, there is a section talking about the foundations for the church being Christ and be careful how we build. Flip over to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. This is the chapter where he talks about the lawsuits and people 
you know, dissension and disagreements, and they're going to the courts. He just this is actually a verse that's going to refer to the believers being a body, which we'll pick up on in chapter twelve. But I just want to mention it here. Do you not know that your body is a temple of God, temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Again, Paul using the image of our body being a temple. Um, from God uh, and we're not our own. We're part of the church which we'll pick up on chapter 12. There's a lot of other verses in the New Testament talk about the building and the foundation and the cornerstone and dwelling place of God. The reason, the reason the building is a good metaphor is because this is a, uh, it has to be a building that's unified together and it just describes this concept of being living stones and Jesus being the cornerstone. Okay. At this point, I want to go to chapter 12 and 13. And I'll read those. And we'll talk about them for a minute. And then we'll have our questions. And as I read through chapter 12 and 13... Uh, I guess, you know, just pay attention. It's obvious when you hear it, all the references to unity, one, 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 common one. I mean, it's, it's just repeated over and over and over again. And then the, you can't have unity unless you have chapter 13, period. And we'll talk about that. So I'll, I'll just read these two chapters and enjoy it as I read it because it's it's just such... Rich food for us. So let's go ahead. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual... This is The people were taking some pride in their own spiritual gifts, one over another. Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And this is, of course, well-known Description of the body, physical body. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. 
And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. They all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I'll show you still a more excellent way. Let's read 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. So, obviously, well, I don't know if you're thinking this, it's on my mind a lot for weeks. When I read that, and I just naturally am applying it to current situation in our church, with, you know, changes and people leaving, and uh, no sense denying that. When I read that, uh, it really encourages me. Does it you? 
And I think it informs us as to how we're to act, not just now, but always in the church. Always. Love, unity, striving for it, pursuing it, forgiveness, patience, forbearance, endurance, all these things uh, is a witness of the Holy Spirit. Other things are not. So I want to talk about... So let me just... Any questions about that, by the way? Any comments before I ask us some questions and we can get a little dialogue going here? Um, oh, a couple comments. Uh, just a note about chapter 12. For obviously, diversity in the body, right? But God arranged all of it perfectly. You can't have a blob of organs sitting there that don't work together. God arranged everything perfect. Your eyes, your nose, your hands, your feet. Everything is arranged perfect with a perfect function. Absolutely designed from the beginning of time to function perfectly. Just like in the church, right? It's designed perfectly. Some of the members are weaker than others, but from God's view, it is necessary. And it is as important as anything else. So all the members are perfectly arranged. Um, if one suffers, all suffer. If one is honored, all are honored. So, question for us. Um, when you think of Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 1.10, where he says, uh, there'll be no division I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord, that you all agree there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. When you read that, what character traits do you think we all have to have to obey it? What character traits do we have to have? I mean, I want to get a list going in order to obey that really exhortation by Paul. To Humility, yes, very good. Hmm? Forgiveness. Yep. Forgiveness. Preference of others. Yeah, all these. Open-mindedness. Open-mindedness, yes. Long-suffering. Yep. Because if there's divisions, if, if you disagree with somebody, there's a division, and we are told, don't divide, just think it through. We have to have all those traits to meet someone, you have to be patient with that person. You have to be humble yourself. You have to prefer their opinion over yours. Um, you have to give it time because the way we communicate is different. Some people say something and I don't hear what they're saying. And they say it again. I don't hear it. I don't hear it. I don't hear it because it's just a different angle. The way they talk is just different. So sometimes you just need time. What else? What other traits do we need? Yeah, love, right, Roman, or chapter 13. You have to, the whole chapter talks about uh, all these characteristics that we just mentioned. It seems to summarize a lot of them if we love each other. You know, we assume the best about that person. They're a believer, they're part of the body, they're a hand. So they've been sanctified. So we have to, as far as we can, assume the best. Very good. Anything else? I think you have to be thoughtful. I guess that goes on with being patient. Um, I think of the ways I don't do this 
uh, I'm often quick to speak, way, way too quick to speak. So you got to hold your, hold your tongue, hold your thought. Um, probably all of us have gotten in trouble by saying things we regret. So don't do that. All of Galatians, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit, yeah, yes, yes, demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so I think we need to keep those in mind. Uh, what day, what ways, and oh, by the way, I also have to say, a lot of this, if you ever have Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book, anybody have that? It is so good. Uh, he's got quite a few chapters on the church. And some of these questions are, are from his application portions of that book. Um, in what ways do you think our church could grow in unity among our members? It's not too loaded a question. Just we can back up a little. Just generically, in, in what ways do you think our church could grow in unity among our members? Aside from the current changes or whatever, just in general, what ways does, does a local church, what tools do we have and what ways can churches grow in unity? Sacrifice. Go ahead. Go ahead, Daniel. Sacrifice, like, sacrifice our time, our, our wants, our desires mm-hmm. for what, for others, I mean, because if you just going to church, what can I get it out of it? Get in there, get out. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be unified. Yep. You look around and you're like, no, I really want to go home and work on my yard, but I see my yard's long and you need to come work on it. <laughs> I'll come with you. We'll work together on it. It's not going to rain this Trusting your elders and your pastor. Yeah, there's verses about that. Trusting uh, the leadership of our local church. I think that's important. Patient with them, more so. I can't, what's the verse? It talks about double honor and, um, yeah, I, I think so. They, they have characteristics that are described in our, you know, in Timothy and Titus about what it takes to be an elder, and so we ought to um, trust them. Just like we trust everybody else, give them the benefit of the doubt always. Until you, if you have a disagreement or a division, well, you apply all these principles. Figure out what's going on. Be a help. Approach it with. Uh, let's read Ephesians four. Approach them and really anybody uh, with this attitude that Paul also exhorts. I guess it's the right word. It's not a command, really. Um, yeah, he implores, Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And here's the words we've just, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And this is great, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, is there a more appropriate verse for that concept? There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. Yeah, what else? What other areas, uh, or what other ways do you think a church can grow in unity among its members? Pray together, like you just said. Pray, yeah. Thank you. Weren't you blessed by that? Yeah, pray together more. 
I hope you guys who went have given feedback to the leadership about what a blessing that was. Yeah, that was a really unifying evening for us. Pray together. Yep, very good. Anything else? I think you have to show extra mercy towards the other members and the leadership. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. Yep. Yeah, whenever there's a controversy anywhere in a church, you have to be merciful and don't be so quick to judge and all that. And uh, Galatians 6, 1. Go ahead. Can you disagree and not be a disagreeable person? Yes. Yes, that's the... Yes. Yeah. You don't see it that way? No, I say when you take an opinion right. of how you see something, if you if you do it under the Lord, and if you can't, well then you gotta go find a place where you can. Yeah, I think you're saying if there's I mean you have to be unified. You have to do what the scriptures say. Yeah. Because it's not an option, it's a command really. Right. So what's the most important thing love. if people disagree is love. Right? Yeah. I mean, if, if uh, um, yes. I mean, the whole chapter 12 talks about we're so different. Every one of us is completely different. So we may have different opinions. But the most important thing is working it through and being united in love to show unity in a church, right? Almost all things I, th- I would say 100% of things among Christians, if we pursue love, pursue unity, do what Paul says, will be reconciled without anger, without dis- none of that should happen, right? And if you have irreconcilable differences, it's like, we disagree. Let's figure out a way to still stay unified for the witness of Christ. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, people can disagree. I, I, I disagree with people all the time, but it's okay. We disagree, but as long as, long as we don't... Yeah, so I'm with you. What else can we do to um, build unity in the church? I think another really important that we don't stress enough is fulfilling the Great Commission uh-huh. where we're sent out to be a witness. And so therefore, we don't think so much about you know what I don't have or who I'm not. But where the world is so lost and desperate for Christ. And if we if we share our faith and be about the Great Commission, then we come back and we get built up and we mm-hmm. see each other different yeah. because of the lostness of the world and the fantastic benefit that we have as believers with each other. Yeah. So it's focused on others for sure, but it's focused on the lost world. Mm-hmm. So it can change your perspective. And uh, some things that might seem really important to argue over become a lot less important when you put it in the grand scheme of eternity and salvation and people who are lost. And, yeah. Especially when you're like overseas and you're in a really dark area and you meet a missionary who's a, you know, Pentecostal, but it's like some of those areas is not a big deal because they're believers and Yes, that gets to one of my questions. In what, what ways could your church demonstrate greater unity with other true churches nearby? So, so I guess to that, we may not do that 
a great job at that, right? Working with other churches. Um, maybe we don't think they're as good as us, right? So, that, so that's one area where we could pursue unity is to be sure we don't have an attitude of, you know, the John MacArthur Church in Woodstock is the only church in Georgia that teaches the truth. Be careful. I'm speaking to myself because I tend this way to think we have a lockdown on the box of truth and other true churches don't have that, so yeah, I'm not going to participate with them or support them or whatever, so we have to be careful of that. Yeah, I think what helps with that, too, is spending time with the leadership of those other churches as well, and maybe not the head pastor, but just, you know, people, and you see their hearts, mm-hmm. you know, they all love the Lord like we do, like Daniel said, you know, the Pentecostal guy that, you know, they, it's not like they love less or we love less or we know more, or, you know, that's, I, I think getting to know other people coming out of our box, perhaps, is the mm-hmm. way to say that, you know, to, um, yep. Because, I mean, like, I love that body analogy. Stub your toe and tell me that's not important. Right. You know, the whole body hurts when that thing's jacked sideways and turns black. The whole thing works together like that. The brain's screaming. I think that was worse than the stub. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds pretty rough. Probably a break. And what can we do with our differences? When we have differences, do we address those? love and go back to the word. If we do, iron is sharpening iron mm-hmm. believers. Yeah. If we're going back and digging in the word to even iron out those differences, um, yeah. we're growing deeper in our faith and deeper in our unity in doing so. So yeah. how do we handle differences? I think you differences just, are always going to exist. I think you just answered it, right? We go back to the word and you allow the iron to sharpen iron. Yeah. And you be patient. You be patient, and you pray, and you, and uh, don't lose sight of the big picture. The big picture is being uh, loving, being good witness to others around you, and resolving differences. I mean, period. Right? That that's just got to be the big picture. And uh, there shouldn't be big differences among believers among the important things. Really, I don't think. And if there are, then adults have to fork it out and, go, and stay in the Word. And Yeah. 